You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 91. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. We are going to finish our reading of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents by Rod Dreher. It's been a long series on this book, I think a worthwhile one. If you are interested in doing a theological deep dive on the book, I also co-host another podcast entitled The Banned Books Podcast with Pastor Christopher Gillespie. We have spent the last four months probably, three or four months reading this book and addressing it from a pastoral perspective and a hard theology perspective. So if that's something that interests you, you can check that out. Banned Books Podcast available on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. We also do a Friday morning live stream on YouTube at 10 a.m., where you can join and interact with us as we read the book, too, if that's something that interests you, or you just want to waste time at work. We're available. We're there for you. So with that being said, let us begin at the end, as always, and then work our way forwards. Our cause appears lost, but we are still here. Now our mission is to build the underground resistance to the occupation, to keep alive the memory of who we were and who we are and to stoke the fires of desire for the true God. Where there is memory and desire, there is hope. Let all saboteurs for the kingdom of God heed the stirring conclusion of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1974 essay, Live Not by Lies, which gives this book its title. It was his valedictory to the Russian people. Quote, We need not be the first to set out on this path, Ours is but to join. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks. The easier and shorter will this path be for us all. If we become thousands, they will not cope. They will be unable to touch us. If we will grow to tens of thousands, we will not recognize our country. But if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. And if from this also we shrink away, then we are worthless, hopeless, and it is of us that Pushkin asks with concern, with scorn, why should cattle have the gifts of freedom? Their heritage from generation to generation is the belled yoke, and the lash. Again, that is Alexander Solzhenitsyn from the 1974 essay, Live Not By Lies, something that I believe every citizen should read and memorize and share with others. Right now, in my opinion, at least in the United States, maybe where you live at, this is as important a message as any message that we can spread and share with others. It's curious to me, and yet not surprising at the same time, that when you read history, when you study history and the rise of totalitarian regimes, there's always a moment. There's a moment where, after the fact, people ask, how could this have happened? How could we have let this occur? 
And I think we're at that tipping point right now in the present. That those of us who study history and learn from history recognize that in the present tense, as of December 8th, 2021, we are now going over the edge. This is the moment that people will ask about in the future. How could we have let this happen? How could we have allowed this to occur? Not just in Austria or Germany, not just in Australia or Canada, but in the United States and across the world. How is it that so few spoke up? How is it that so many recognize politicians do not represent the will of the people? That corporate media is the mouthpiece, the propaganda arm of the state. That compulsory education is simply an indoctrination camp for children. How do we not see all of these mandates and guidelines, all of these new laws, piece by piece, step by step, inch by inch, carry us into full-blown totalitarianism? Last year, I told my friend in April that I knew within a year there would be cards that you would have to carry with you that prove that you were vaccinated in order to travel by air. And be him being a businessman who flies all over the world, I warned him, you need to plan for what's coming in the near future. Because if you're anti-mRNA serum, you will not be allowed to fly. And he agreed with me intellectually. And he affirmed what I was saying, that he believed it was true. But now it's actually happening. And people are saying, yeah, but I don't fly internationally. I don't go overseas for vacation. So they don't think it's a big deal. Just like they said, well, it doesn't matter if I need a vaccine pass or a piece of paper in my pocket so that I can enter the theater or restaurants or go to an event because I really don't go out that much anyways. And when I do, I go locally. And I know my neighbors. I know the shop owners. I know the restaurateurs and the entrepreneurs in my community. They would never do this to me. So why should I be worried? But how long until we are forbidden from traveling domestically by air? How long until all means of public transit are taken away from us if we don't have our vaccination card with us? How long until we go back and rediscover Animal Farm by George Orwell? And we apply the principles of what he writes about in that fictional novel. Because three jabs good, two jabs bad. Four jabs good, three jabs bad. Over and over and over they keep moving the goalposts when all of the scientific evidence and research that's coming out just in the last week or so proves that the vaccine, and it's not even a vaccine, does little to immunize anybody from COVID-19. In fact, it's a prophylactic at best. So then they had to change the definition of a vaccine. They changed the definition of herd immunity. They changed the definition of what a booster shot is. Every time the research disproves the propaganda, those in power rewrite the definitions. That's the nature of propaganda. And we call them out on their lies and we get censored and shadow banned and deleted from social media. We're vilified and demonized by those who get their information on how to think and how to speak and how to act from the black mirror in their houses. 
How long until we are forbidden from going into restaurants and theaters and sports venues? How long until the local business owner and shopkeeper and entrepreneur bans us from going into their place of business because the city council or the chamber of commerce is threatening to take away their business license if they don't? How long will we do nothing? How long will we stand around waiting for someone else to stand up and take the lead? Do we want to be those people in the future who look back and ask ourselves the question naively, perhaps with willful ignorance and blindness, how could we have let this happen? How could this have occurred? And this is the answer. It happened by degrees. And because we were afraid to be the first one to speak up, no one spoke up. And those who had the courage, the moral courage to speak up were silenced. And when they were silenced, we said nothing. And when they were deleted and banned from social media, we said nothing. And when they were removed from flights, we said nothing. When they were banned from restaurants and venues, we said nothing. When their children were expelled from school for not being vaccinated, we said nothing. When they were banned from the local grocery store or restaurant or butcher shop, we said nothing. That's how it happens. Because you lack the moral courage to stand up and speak out. Because as Solzhenitsyn says, if we are thousands, they won't be able to comprehend. They won't be able to handle us. If we reach tens and hundreds of thousands, we wouldn't recognize our country. Which is why the corporate media in every country is desperately trying to hide the truth. That there are hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people around the world protesting every week, every day against the mandates and the lockdowns. And they get no coverage, which is just further proof that the media is the propaganda arm of the state and always has been. In fact, this week, it came out yesterday that the major news networks went to the White House to coordinate with the White House on what the White House wants put out in the public about the economy and the inflation. They're admitting openly that they're engaged in a propaganda campaign against the citizens of the United States on behalf of the White House and the state apparatus. And yet people still turn on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News every day and think that that's the truth. When they're all owned by the same parent company, they get their marching orders and their talking points from the same source. It's all theater. It's all to keep us arguing and debating and divided. But just like Democrats and Republicans, CNN and Fox News are two wings of the same bird. And because we allow them to do this to us, because we don't turn off the TV, because we continue to vote in sham elections for the same fraudulent candidates that are shown to us and propped up by the media and sold to us, because we swallow the lies about racial and gender inequality in this country and we propagate the divisions that they push us to engage in, that's how totalitarianism takes over. That's how we open our homes and our communities and our churches and our schools and our places of business to these totalitarian regimes. They create the crisis. We carry that ball forward 
and then they come around behind us and offer the solution. They want us dependent upon the state apparatus for everything that we need for our body and mind. So let's get into then the gift of suffering today. Because for those of us who take a step back and are frustrated by people's lack of reception of the data, of the evidence, of the facts, for those of us who are tired and frustrated and sometimes exhausted because we are vilified, we are marginalized and ostracized within our communities, within our churches, because we're uninvited to Thanksgiving and Christmas, because our family mocks and ridicules us. It's difficult. It's difficult if you're not used to suffering. It's difficult if you're not used to being cursed and mocked and ridiculed. It's especially difficult, in my opinion, when those whom you call family, those whom you call friends, those people that you thought loved and cherished you, turn on you and reveal their true face to you, which is often monstrous and demonic. That's a hard thing to suffer through, especially if you've never contemplated or considered the truth about your familial relationships or the depth of your friendships. So let's dive into it then. Live not by lies, the gift of suffering, beginning on page 193. Bless those who persecute you, Jesus taught. Vengeance is easier to resist if you have that mindset. Bless those who persecute you. Right off the bat, we're challenged. What could be more challenging, more frustrating, more devastating than Jesus' command to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you? Is there anything that would turn somebody off to Christianity faster especially when they're suffering, especially when they're persecuted, than to tell them, well, this is what Jesus teaches. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Wish only good for them. Pray for them. Because vengeance is easier to resist if you have that mindset. In his master work, the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn reveals how he and his fellow inmates were beaten, humiliated, deprived of liberty, made to live in filth and freezing temperatures and crawling with lice, and to endure many other grotesque manifestations of communism's determination to create heaven on earth. That's why nothing in that epical book's pages shocks more than these lines, quote, that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say sometimes to the astonishment of those around me, bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. I don't want to skip over this point because it's key. The grotesque manifestations of communism's determination to create heaven on earth. Every time we attempt to create heaven on earth, every instance when we attempt to stand in God's place, to be God in God's place, we do not bring about heaven on earth. Instead, we bring about chaos and destruction, and death. We bring about hell on earth instead. This is the original sin. 
to be like God, knowing good and evil, but having no power, no control over the consequences of good and evil. In fact, we are so innately selfish and self-serving that we cannot but create a hell on earth when we attempt to build heaven. Because we are not God. We are not divinity. We are not angelic. In fact, we are innately bent toward what is evil and demonic. Why? Because it appeals to us. Because we like it. Because it gives us pleasure. When I was a graduate teaching assistant, one of my responsibilities then was to grade tests, oversee the administration of quizzes and tests and midterms and read essays, answer students' questions in between classes. And every semester then I would sit in my professor's classroom, listen to the same lecture every 12 weeks for six years. So I have whole semesters worth of lectures memorized. And every semester, students would come in brand new, fresh-faced, and they would ask the exact same questions as if they were the first to ever think of it. And one question that was always asked without fail every semester when we got on the topic of original sin was this. Why do we sin? And my professor would pause, and he would look down at his notes, and he would chuckle. And then he would look back up with a big smile and say, because we like it. And the students would revolt, these good, pious Christian students. How could their professor, a theologian of the church, how could he say that we actually like to sin We actually like being selfish. And he would read the text. He would quote the Bible. And they would still be in revolt against his answer. Because the consequences for them personally, having to admit that the reason that we are selfish, the reason we sin, is because we like it. But it's the truth. We don't do anything that is good for us, unselfishly. In fact, that's why we do things that give us pleasure, that we feel good about. Because they give us pleasure and they make us feel good about ourselves. We will trade a lifetime of health for five minutes of mouth pleasure. We will trade a lifetime of sanity for a a destructive relationship. We will plan great adventures that end in catastrophe Because we refused to accept the reality and take a good, hard look at our plans and acknowledge, maybe this is dangerous. Maybe we are ill-prepared. Maybe we haven't taken enough time to plan out this adventure, this trip. We do this to ourselves constantly. In many ways, we bring about our own suffering. We create conflict. We endure catastrophes and chaos, suffering and affliction because of our own actions and our refusal to take responsibility and accept the consequences for them. But when people get together and they form these groups, these regimes, these tribes that are bent on bringing about heaven on earth, 
Chaos always ensues. The consequences are always deadly. As my professor also said, there is no dictator like an idealist. Because an idealist lives entirely in his or her imagination, believing then that their daydream of a perfect world can become a reality with enough work, with enough money, with enough effort and energy, with enough threat of violence. And that's why for an idealist, anybody who does not buy into their idea of a perfect world is the enemy, is the heretic, is the obstruction, anti-progress, anti-evolution. Because their idea Their idea of a better world, a perfect world, a perfect relationship, a perfect job, a perfect child, whatever it may be, that platonic idea of perfection, which doesn't exist and can never actually occur. You can never manifest the perfect anything. It leads to destruction. It leads to hurt and harm. It ruins us personally, relationally, vocationally. Because we don't recognize how much of our suffering is self-inflicted. And we refuse to stand up and push back against those idealists who would afflict us. Idealism. There's more than two genders. Idealism. Class and hierarchy are cultural constructs. Idealism. With enough money and enough effort, we can immunize everyone against death. Idealism. If we just elect the right people, everything will be better. Idealism. If you would just do what I want, if you would just speak the way that I have taught you how to speak, if you would just think the way that I think, everything could be better. Idealism. And idealists make the best dictators. And how many of us, after the fact, can look back with nostalgia like Solzhenitsyn and say, bless you, prison. Bless you, terrible relationship. Bless you, job that tortured me for five and a half years before I quit. How, how often can we say that? I'm off on a tangent today, but bear with me. I got a lot rumbling around in my head and it's early in the morning and I ate chocolate-covered espresso beans <laughs> after I had coffee. That's always a wise decision, speaking of selfishness and and lack of self-preservation. The other day, my mother sent a picture to my wife of me at my high school sweetheart's junior prom. She was a junior. I was a freshman in college. My wife looks nothing like my high school sweetheart. 1990, 1989, 1990, I was a freshman in college. So you can imagine the style of our hair, of our clothing in 1989-1990. Also, I married my wife when I was 27, 28 years old. In the picture, I am 18 and a half, 19 years old. That's a decade's difference in my appearance. And yet somehow my mother thought it was a good idea to send a picture of me at my high school sweetheart's prom to my wife of 24 years. We didn't ask why, because we know better than to ask. But looking at that picture, 
And there is a point to this story, so hold on. Looking at that picture that I hadn't seen in a long time, many, many years, decades probably, it was interesting to me to see it again for the first time because one, I didn't recognize myself. And two, when I was 18, 19 years old, my girlfriend and I had been together since I was 16. She was 14 and a half going on 15. I think that's right. At that time in high school, she, to me, was an absolute smoke show, most beautiful girl in the city. Wonderful personality, just amazing body, just everything about her was too good to be true. And that's why when we broke up, it devastated me. The first time we really broke up, broke up. We broke up a lot. We had a really abusive relationship because we were young and stupid and I grew up in a house with crazy people who abused me and she grew up in a house with crazy people who yelled and shouted all the time. It was very chaotic, our relationship. But we were also young. We were teenagers. We were stupid. We didn't have the maturity or the life experience to comprehend what we were doing and, and the consequences. But looking back at that picture now as an adult, she's nothing like I remember. And I'm nothing like I remember. And that's the trap of idealism, especially given time and distance from the original event. When I look back at that picture now, I see strangers. I look at myself and my high school sweetheart and I don't recognize those people. I don't know who they are. But before I looked at that picture, in my mind, she was as I had remembered her idealized her. I was as I remembered myself, as I idealized myself. And then to see that snapshot and be kind of jarred awake that it was idealism. It was rose-tinted glasses through which I looked at that part of my history. I think it's important for us when we get in those modes of thinking and daydreaming and imagining I think that's the importance of going back and looking at old pictures, talking with folks who were there maybe at the time and go, hey, how do you remember this? To remind us that more often than not, our nostalgia, our idealism about the past is just that. It's a daydream. It's not real. It's not grounded in reality. But also maybe as a side note, to also remind us that our memories are not like stone tablets that we inscribe the past on, that our memory is fungible, our brain is spongy. It's constantly editing and deleting and tweaking and processing these photographs that make up our memories. And it's not healthy then for us to hang a lot of meaning on our memories about the past because we do not remember the past in a binary way. It's not black and white one-to-one. -one. It's very murky and clouded and shifting, it moves a lot. It's like looking at your reflection in a river or a stream. So all of that being said, let us beware of idealism and let us be wary of idealists when they come to us with their daydreams about a better world or a better job or a better house or a better relationship. Maybe they're onto something, but maybe not. So Solzhenitsyn, his audacious claim was that suffering had refined him and taught him to love. 
It was only there, out of the experience of intense suffering, that the prisoner began to understand the meaning of life and first began to sense the good inside himself. To be clear, there is nothing in the Gospels that requires Christians to seek out suffering. The Word of God is not a prescription for masochism, but the life of Christ, as well as the Old Testament's examples of the prophets, compels believers to accept the impenetrable mystery that suffering, if rightly received, can be a gift. Suffering, if rightly received, can be a gift. Father Kirill Kaleda, the Russian Orthodox priest who pastors the church dedicated to the martyrs of the Bolshevik persecution, offers a prudent view on suffering in the life of a Christian. Quote, taking up your cross and carrying it is always going to be uncomfortable. We can say clearly that this current ideology of comfort is anti-Christian in its very essence, says Father Kirill. But we should point out the fact that the church, not once, ever, called its followers to look for suffering, and even made it clear that they are warned not to do that. But if a person finds himself in a situation where he is suffering, then he should bear it with courage. Moral courage, spiritual courage, but courage nonetheless. Hmm. Don't look for suffering. Don't try and choose your suffering. But when it comes, bear it. Bear it, suffer it, and do it with courage. When you're exhausted, of course you're exhausted. You're bearing a heavy weight. But bear it with moral courage. Understanding why it is that you're bearing this cross. Why this suffering has fallen upon you. Why this affliction is directed directly at you and understand if you're a Christian you're suffering for Christ's sake if you're not a Christian you're suffering for the sake of a cause greater than yourself don't go looking for it but if you're going to record a podcast or post on social media or speak out in public you're going to be a target I preach about this stuff in church, in my church, from my pulpit, I preach about this stuff. And I warn my people, I encourage my people, I sermonize about God's promises to them in the midst of their suffering and afflictions. And for this, I've been vilified and demonized by other pastors. This is not isolated. This is not reserved for the home or your neighborhood, or the job site. It's everywhere now. Because that's the nature of totalitarianism, is it seeks to creep into every corner of our lives and make itself the one constant that we can always count on, good, bad, or indifferent. The regime is always there, always listening, always tracking and recording your movements, always paying attention, always listening in. But in the present tense, we actually signed up for it. We signed waivers. We volunteered for it. We accepted phones, tablets, laptops, cars, and other vehicles with microchips 
and GPS that track our every move. We put speakers in our homes that we can talk to that listen to us 24-7. And all of that information, just like the database that was just recently voted on by both Democrats and Republicans and was accepted, they're going to create a database of those who are vaccinated to keep track of them. But that also means there's a secondary database that they won't talk about that keeps track of the unvaccinated. And they will keep ratcheting up the pressure. They will keep taking away from us our rights and our freedoms until they force us to get the jab. Why? So that they can clean out the riffraff. They can cut down on the carbon footprint. They can eliminate the hoi polloi so that all those natural resources that they believe they're entitled to aren't taken away by us. When they say that we need to get vaccinated for the public good, for health, what they really mean is we need to kill off a lot of you for our good and for our health and well-being because you're consuming too many of our resources. You're ruining the planet for us. We know where all of the pollutants come from, where all the carbon emissions coming from. We know who the biggest polluters are. We know all this. We know who's destroying the, the earth the fastest. It's China and India. We know this. 27, the top 27 cities in the world that produce the most carbon are all in China. The top 27. The wealthiest people on earth actually create the most carbon emissions because of the way in which they live and how they travel. They take up the most land. They take up the most airspace. They consume the most natural resources. And yet we're told day after day after day by the propagandists in the media that we are the problems. We need to recycle our cardboard and bottles to save the earth. While these people fly around on their jets, burning tens of thousands of gallons of petrol, polluting the atmosphere with their exhaust fumes. On their way to observe their factories in China and India. To walk through their factories and observe all of the slaves making these products that they'll sell to the West. And what do we do? Well, we buy them, we consume them. We follow along with their directives like good little sheep. Why? Because we don't want to admit that we're suffering. And we don't want to admit who it is that puts those crosses on our shoulders. And why we have to carry this burden alone. We don't have to, but because we won't ask the question, because we won't stand up and boldly demand answers, that's kind of how it ends up for many of us. So, Alexander Ogorodnikov, Ogorodnikov, oof, that's a hard one, whom you met in earlier chapters, is one of the most famous dissidents of the late Soviet period. Born into a communist family, he was a leader in the Komosomol youth movement, his enthusiasm earning him notice from the KGB, as a potential recruit. But he converted to Christianity in his 20s. His campaigning for religious liberty landed him a prison sentence in 1978. He was freed nine years later 
after U.S. President Ronald Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher appealed to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev on his behalf. Ogorodnikov, now nearly 70, is quiet and intense. His face is partially paralyzed as a result of the beatings he received in the gulag. It is one thing to read about the torture of Soviet prison camps in a book. It is quite another to listen to an account from the mouth of a man who experienced it. I find out later from my translator that Ogorodnikov had been anxious about meeting me at my hotel, the Hotel Metropole, because in communist times it was a KGB den. Though he did not have a death sentence, Soviet authorities nevertheless decided to teach Ogorodnikov a lesson by placing him on death row in one of the USSR's harshest prisons, a facility where, according to one of, of Ogorodnikov's captors, the state sent people to be broken, quote, to bleed you out drop by drop. When I went into the cell and looked at the others who were there, I told them, Listen, brothers, I was sent here to help you meet death, not as criminals, but as men with souls that are going to meet their makers to go meet God the Father. Given that they always took people to go be shot really early in the morning, many of them did not sleep. They were waiting for the knock at the door to see who would be called out. So, of course, they didn't sleep. Neither did I. I helped them turn this night of terror into a night of hope. The young Christian, not yet 30, told these hardened criminals that though he was not a priest, he would still be willing to hear their confessions. I told them I couldn't absolve them, but when I die and go before the Lord, I will be a witness to their repentance. If I wanted to describe for you their confessions, I would need to be Dostoevsky. I don't have the words myself. I told them that God is merciful, and the fact that they are admitting what they had done and denouncing it would wash them and purify them. They were all going to be shot sooner or later, but at least they would die with a clean conscience. When the prison authorities realized that confinement in a cell with the worst of the worst was not leading Ogorodnikov to repent of his sins against the Soviet state, they put him in solitary confinement. I was alone in the chamber one night, he remembers. I felt very clearly that someone woke me up in the middle of the night. It was soft, but clear. He goes on, When I woke up, I had a very, very clear vision. I could see the corridor of the jail. I could see the person being taken out of his cell in chains. But I only saw them from behind. But I knew exactly who it was. I understood that God sent me an angel to wake me up so I could accompany that man in prayer as he was being taken out to be shot. Who am I to be shown this, I asked God. Then I understood that I was seeing the extent of God's love. I understood that the prayers of this prisoner and I had been heard and that he was forgiven. I was in tears. This awakening did not occur with all of those prisoners, only with some of them. Ogorodnikov interpreted this as a sign that not all of the prisoners with whom he prayed had been sincere in their repentance. As he languished in solitary confinement, the mystical awakenings continued as an unseen force would nudge him out of sleep with a gentle touch. The same kind of vision played out in front of the prisoner's open eyes, the image of guards leading a shackled prisoner to his execution. After this happened a few times, 
Ogorodnikov wondered why, in these waking visions, he was not allowed to see the condemned prisoners' faces. He did not penetrate this mystery until later, in a different prison, through what he regards as a divine revelation. In that small prison, Ogorodnikov was the only captive, and he was looked after by a single guard who was clearly a prisoner, I'm sorry, a pensioner, allowed to work the night shift because he was lonely. One night, he entered Ogorodnikov's cell with a wild look on his face. They come at night, said the old man to the prisoner. Strange words, but Ogorodnikov understood that the old man was being driven to the brink of insanity by something and that he needed to confess. Ogorodnikov urged him to speak. This is what the haunted prison guard said. When I was a young guard in a different prison, they would gather 20 or 30 priests who had been behind bars and took them outside. They rigged them up to a sled so that they were pulling the sled. They had them pull the sled out into the forest. They made them run all day until they brought them to a swamp. And then they put them in two rows, one behind the other. I was one of the guards who stood in the perimeter around the prisoners. One of the KGB guys walked up to the first priest. He asked him very calmly and quietly, Is there a God? The priest said, Yes. They shot him in the forehead in such a way that his brains covered the priest standing behind him. He calmly loaded his pistol, went to the next priest and asked, Does God exist? Yes, he exists. The KGB man shot this priest in the same way. He did not blindfold them. They saw everything that was about to happen to them. (sighs) Ogorodnikov fights back tears as he comes to the end of his story. In a voice cracking with emotion, the old prisoner says, Not one of those priests denied Christ. This is why the old man volunteered to keep Ogorodnikov company after sundown. Memories of the priest's faces in the moments before their execution haunted him at night. This encounter with the broken prison guard made Ogorodnikov understand why. In his mystical visions, he had not been able to see the faces of the condemned. He too would have been driven mad by the horror. He had to be content with the knowledge that because he had been present, to share the gospel with them. Those poor souls, damned in this life, would live forever in paradise. Hmm. So let's talk about that. Because I think it's important. And maybe you haven't asked the question as you listen to this, but my mind is asking the question as I read it. Isn't that also idealism? That even though we are poor souls and damned in this life, damned to persecution and suffering and affliction for our faith in this example. And yet we do so because we believe we will live forever in paradise. Is that not also idealism? To the outsider, I would say yes. The old atheist in me says, yes, that's idealism. But here's the difference between platonic idealism and hope, which is sometimes called hopium, 
a play on opium and Marx and religion is the opiate of the masses. What's the difference between hope and hopium? Hopium is idealism. And this is just my opinion, my breakdown, my commentary on this. But idealism is just that. It's an idea. It's not real. It's a daydream. It's something that we imagine. Whether it be, again, imagining a better relationship for ourselves, daydreaming about a better job, having this idea in our head of a perfect world that we can only realize perhaps in Minecraft, right? But hope is based in what is real. As I read at the beginning of every one of these episodes, it's based on memory and desire. Hope is based on memory of actual events, of real things and real people. And the desire to learn from our memories, to learn from those people, in order that the future is open. It's hopeful because we see from the past. We, we receive in our collective memory or our individual memories. And because of our desire to have that, to have that person back, to relive that, that event, that moment, perhaps ones that we never ourselves lived through, such as when we're reading this book and we read about these people and we say to ourselves, I wish, I pray to have the moral courage and the spiritual courage of a man like Ogorodnikov, and perhaps in the future learn how to pronounce his name correctly without stumbling over my own tongue. Hope is the opposite of idealism. Idealism is wishful thinking. It's daydreaming. It's our imagination. And we have to force it to become a reality. We have to do something to manifest our ideals. But hope is based on what has already happened, that is already a fact and true. It's grounded in the concrete promises, in this case, of God, that today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' words on the cross to the thief that repented. Hope is based on what's real. Idealism is not. This is why idealism will destroy homes, churches, communities, the world. Whereas hope builds up, restores, regenerates, renews families and churches and communities in the world. Because hope is grounded in what is true and what is real. And it's focused on the future. That the future is open and that there is freedom there and there is charity there and there is acceptance and kindness and real justice and righteousness. Idealism, it essentially closes the future because it idealizes the future and says, the future can only happen and occur in this way, according to my daydreams. Otherwise, it's not a good future. There is no freedom, no charity, no kindness, no justice, unless we enact and manifest my ideal reality. Well, that closes the future because everybody has to participate then in making that ideal a reality. And everything else must be sacrificed for the ideal. Hope is the opposite of idealism. So the hope in paradise, the hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, hope in the restoration of creation to be delivered from selfishness, from death, from evil, these are all grounded in what has already happened, in the promises of God in the past, and how he delivered his people in the past, from their affliction and their trials and suffering. And so we draw strength from Ogorodnikov because he was real 
and he lived these events. They're concrete. They actually happened. And they serve as an example for us so that we can draw strength from them. We can actually buttress our own lacking, waning, needy courage with these examples. We can say to ourselves, if Solzhenitsyn suffered in this way, and he lived, and Ogorodnikov suffered in this way, and he lived, and Kolakovich suffered in this way, and lived, and this is how they did it, this is how the Benda family got through it, here's our example, here's how we can get through it too. Now, that being said, for every Solzhenitsyn, for every Benda family member, for every Ogorodnikov, and every Kolakovich who lived, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands died. Priests were lined up and shot in the face for refusing to deny their belief in Christ. Because their hope, their belief, it was a living contradiction to the idealism of the Soviet regime. It was a concrete belief and hope in what is real and true and good. And the communist regime could not stand it because it interfered with their perfect world, their utopian ideal. But always remember that utopia means no place. Utopos, no place. So even if you're not a Christian, you can still draw strength. You can still build your courage upon the examples of these people. The only difference being They did what they did in faith, in hope, in their God and the future that was open to them because of their faith. So then skipping ahead, because this entire chapter is gold, by the way, so please read it. But to the end, see, judge, act, page 205. To recognize the value in suffering is to rediscover a core teaching of historical Christianity and to see clearly the pilgrim path walked by every generation of Christians since the Twelve Apostles. There is nothing more important than this when building up Christian resistance to the coming totalitarianism. It is also to declare one's self a kind of savage in today's culture, even within the culture of the church. It requires standing foursquare against much of popular Christianity, which has become a shallow self-help cult whose chief aim is not cultivating discipleship, but rooting out personal anxieties. But to refuse to see suffering as a means of sanctification, of being made holy by God's Spirit, is to surrender, in Huxley's withering phrase, to Christianity without tears. How are we supposed to judge the right approach to suffering, though? Unfortunately, there is no clear formula. As Father Kirill Kaleda says, we ought not to go out looking for it. Even Christ in Gethsemane prayed that the cup of suffering might be taken from him, if it be God's will. The virtue of prudence is critical, in part to help us discern the difference between reasoning and rationalizing. All of us prefer the cup to pass, but if our moment comes, then we have to be ready to make a costly stand. We will not know how to behave when that time arrives if we have not prepared ourselves to accept pain and loss for the sake of God's kingdom. Most of us in the West don't yet have opportunities to suffer 
for the faith like Christians under communism did, but we have their stories to guide us, as well as the accounts of Christian martyrdom worldwide throughout the ages. Familiarize yourself. Familiarize yourself with their stories and teach them to your children. These stories are near the core of the lived Christian experience and form an essential part of Christian cultural memory. Learn them so that you will know when and how to live them. God cannot will evil, though he showed in his passion that he can permit suffering for some greater good. Judging accurately whether or not he is calling us to share in his passion in a particular instance requires having faith that our suffering will have purpose, though that purpose may not be clear to us at the time. When he went to prison as a layman, George Calsu was moved to deep conversion by the witness of priests who were his fellow inmates. When he returned to prison later in life, Calsu was a priest and led other inmates to Christ as he had been led decades earlier. Ogorotnikov's ministry, he is confident, led condemned men to paradise. Kremeris laid the groundwork. Kremeris, sorry. Kirchmeris, there we go. Kirchmeris laid the groundwork for the underground church. Solzhenitsyn emerged from the grinding misery of the gulag as a fearless man of God, whose prophetic witness to the world helped bring down an evil empire. When we act, either to embrace suffering on our own or to share in the suffering of others. We have to let it change us. We have to let it change us as it changed these confessors of the communist yoke. It could make us bitter, angry, and vengeful. Or it could serve as a refiner's fire, as it did with Solzhenitsyn, Kalsu, Kuchmeri, Ogorodnikov, and so many others purifying our love of God and tortured humanity. No Christian has the power to avoid suffering entirely. It is the human condition. What we do control is how we act in the face of it. Will we run from it and betray our Lord? Or will we accept it as a severe mercy? The choices we will make when we put to the ultimate test depend on the choices that we make today in a time of peace. This is what Father Tomislav Kolokovich understood when he arrived in Czechoslovakia and set about preparing the church for the coming persecution. This is why when the secret police came for Sylvester Kirchmeri, he knew how to carry that cross like a true Christian. Now, obviously, you need to read the rest of the book to get up to speed with these names that I'm mentioning here at the end of the chapter. But this is the point. Do we have the moral courage? Have we prepared ourselves mentally and physically and emotionally for persecution, for suffering? Have we prepared ourselves? Have we learned our lessons from those who came before us and withstood the suffering and the persecution and the affliction? Have we learned from them? And learning from them, been prepared for what will happen to us in the future. Because as I said earlier, if you are fighting back, if you are homeschooling your children because you're fed up with the school system and the teachers' unions and the state claiming that they have ultimate authority over what is good for your child, if you have pushed back against the state 
or the mayor or the city council over mandates and guidelines. If you've had to work from home because you've been excluded from your workplace for refusing to be injected. If you fight the good fight. However that happens, however you do that. Have you learned the lessons of history? Have you learned from your spiritual and moral forefathers how to stand up, how to fight back, how to prepare for suffering? So that when it comes upon you, you can receive that heavy weight as a gift, as a severe mercy of God. Because if you have not, when the moment comes, when the tidal wave breaks over you, when you are suffering, will it be too late for you? Have you created that infrastructure? Have you created that social network? Have you created those interpersonal relationships so that you know who you can lean into and who you can depend on and who will carry you when you fall? Who will bail you out of jail? Who will bring food to your house? Who will care for your spouse and your children should you be unable to? Who is going to hire you? How are you going to generate an income if you're fired from your job? If you can't fly or can't travel by train or bus, how will you get around? There is really no way to avoid suffering entirely. Whether it's interpersonally, professionally, or at an abstract level of totalitarianism, essentially sweeping the globe right now. But the choices that we make today, when we are then put to the ultimate test, will either enjoy the comfort and peace of our convictions and our beliefs, We'll live in hope in the midst of our suffering or we will fold because our ideals are crushed by reality. When the police come to your door, how will you greet them? When they march into your church to put you in handcuffs and drive you away to process you, how will you react? Who are your allies? Who are your intimate friends? Who can you rely on to show up for you when the chips are down? Familiarize yourself with the stories of those who came before you and teach them to your children. Read through the chapter on family. Learn from the bendas. Teach that, read it to your children so that they can engage in the conversation with you, so that they too are prepared. Because as I talked to my two boys yesterday who are 9 and 11, and we discussed how we live differently than other people. And that's why it's so difficult for them to have any kind of long-term friendship with other boys their age. I actually quoted the Benda family to them. And I said, I know it's difficult and I know it hurts. I know it's heartbreaking for you. That you don't have any control over how their parents behave or how they see us. We don't have any control over your friends and whether they remain your friends or not, and whether we can you know, go over to their house or they can come here and we can play together. I have, we don't have any control over those people, what they believe, their ideas, how they parent their children. I know it's hard. I've been through it. But you have to understand something too. What your mother and I are doing for you as your parents is we're making you strong for what you'll have to deal with as you get older. 
because they will have a much more difficult time of this than we do. Because everything that's happening now that is so alien, so monstrous, so strange to us, by the time my children are my age, God willing, this will all be normalized. This will all be the way it's always been for them. So they need to be stronger than us. We need to focus our energy and our time and our attention on making them stronger than us, preparing them for what they will face as they grow and mature and venture out into the world or not. We're preparing them to suffer. We're preparing them to struggle in faith. We're preparing them to carry their cross with moral and spiritual courage and to not deny their confession of faith, to not deny their beliefs and their values, to act on their conviction, even in the face of violence, ostracization, and marginalization. And it hurts. It hurts me as their father to have to tell them these things because it's not the world that I want them to live in. It's not how I want them to grow up but it's the reality of the world they live in. And I'm not going to idealize their future for them because I'm not serving them that way. I'm not preparing them adequately. So we must teach our children to be fighters. We must, we must teach them to be critical thinkers. We must teach them the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. We must teach them how to speak up how to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves. We need to teach them how to be subversive, saboteur, dissidents for the faith. Because if we don't, well then to quote Pushkin, we have essentially prepared them for the belled yoke and the lash. And so my encouragement today for you is to do everything that you need to do to save your children and to strengthen them for the future. Prioritize your children. Sacrifice whatever needs to be done in order to protect them from the evil that has pervaded our society. Insulate them and educate them about pop culture and the corporate media and politicians. Teach them their history. Teach them to think critically about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But also teach them to love unconditionally, to hope unconditionally, to be charitable, to smile in the face of their persecutors. That way they can venture into the future, an open future full of freedom, and kindness, and justice, and righteousness, and hope. That's how we raise our children, and that's how we tear down totalitarianism. We plant the seeds and water them today, and God gives them the growth, and then tomorrow they overshadow all of this evil, and they starve it. They produce the fruit of repentance and faith. They produce the fruit of hope and joy and courage. And in this way, we together will destroy totalitarianism. 
We will destroy fascism. We will destroy the death cults, and we will open the eyes of the slaves to the reality of their own liberation, both here and hereafter. So that's all I got today, Space Monkeys. Hope that's encouraging. I hope you've enjoyed the book as much as I have. I might be coming back to it in the future. If there are other books in this vein, in this genre that you would like to me to read, DM me, email me, text me, let me know. I'd love to carry on the conversation. I think it's a very valuable and needed one today, both in the church and outside the church. So anything that I can do to keep pushing that rock up the hill with you, I'm here for you. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again real soon. Peace.